Chapter 11, Part 2 of Twenty Years of the Republic, 1885 to 1905, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Election of 1896, Part 2. Of course, this declaration under all its sounding phrases was ambiguous to a degree. Everybody, Democrats, Republicans, and Populists, desired honest money. They were all agreed that gold, silver, and paper ought to constitute the currency of the United States. But as to what was honest money, and as to what were to be the relative values of the gold, silver, and paper, opinions were everywhere as widely divergent as those of President Cleveland and Coyne Harvey. The effect of this Ohio Declaration was, on the whole, however, just what Mr. Hanna had intended. It left things in the West precisely where they were and enabled the McKinley agents to explain their candidates' opinions in whatever way was most likely to please their auditors in each section. As for Mr. McKinley himself, he remained at his home in Canton, refusing with much dignity to be interviewed, but making from time to time a brief address on the subject of the tariff. In New England, and above all in New York, his reticence excited both alarm and indignation. Was Mr. McKinley still a silver man at heart as he had been in 1878, when he voted for the Bland-Allison bill, and as he had seemed to be when later he reproached President Cleveland for having struck down silver? Many and vehement were the demands that he come out frankly and say just what he thought about the most vital issue of the day. Mr. Hanna and his associates treated this demand as though it were impertinent and almost insulting. Mr. Grosvenor of Ohio said with a show of solemn indignation, no man's friends have a right to call upon him to foreshadow the party's platform. Major McKinley will respond to the platform, but he will not dictate what the platform shall be. Note 9, page 483 Perhaps through the minds of some of the anxious Republicans who read these words, there may have flitted a recollection of Mr. Cleveland's blunt letter to the Reform Club in 1892. Note 10, page 483 When he spoke out just what he thought, even though he felt that in doing so he was forfeiting the presidency. Their fears, at any rate, led them to work hard for delegations favorable to the gold standard. Early in June, it was evident that Mr. Hanna had in all probability secured a majority in support of McKinley's nomination, while it was also probable that the silver men would be outvoted. Twenty-two Republican state conventions had, in fact, pronounced openly against the free coinage of silver. Yet it still seemed possible that the National Convention in St. Louis would repeat the Ohio straddle and thus continue the traditional policy of evasion and equivocation. The convention met on June 16th with little show of genuine enthusiasm among the delegates. Note 11, page 484. Even before the formal opening, the money question had dwarfed all other topics of discussion. There were rumors of dissension and threats of actual bolting, Senator Platt of New York openly attacked Mr. McKinley for his secretiveness and duplicity and spoke of withdrawing from the convention if it failed to make a specific declaration for the gold standard. The New York delegation, of which Mr. Platt was chairman, passed resolutions condemning the free coinage of silver. On the other hand, Senator Henry M. Teller, who headed the Colorado delegation, made it plain that if a gold plank were adopted, he and his followers would secede. The delegations from the other western mining states were equally emphatic. Mr. Hanna had secured most of the southern delegates for his candidate, but some were still in doubt. One of the Texan delegates received by every mail postcards on which large and vivid characters in red admonished him, If you vote for Mr. McKinley, you need not come back to Dallas. 
Note 12, page 484. The New England representative still warmly urged the claims of Mr. Reed, whose foremost champion was Senator Lodge of Massachusetts. The New York delegates were favorable to the candidacy of Mr. Levi P. Morton, who had been vice president during the Harrison administration. Mr. Key of Pennsylvania showed how completely he was master of his own state by the fact that the Pennsylvania delegates were pledged to give him at least a complimentary vote. The Iowa delegation had been directed to put Senator Allison in nomination. Thus, when the first session of the convention began, under the temporary chairmanship of Mr. Charles W. Fairbanks of Indiana, all was confusion, and rumors of every sort were rife. Meanwhile, Mr. Hanna was solidifying the strength of the McKinley forces and hourly adding to their numbers. In his pocket he had a draft of the money plank, which he meant to have the convention finally adopt, and it was explicitly and unequivocally in favor of the gold standard. He had shown it to Mr. McKinley, who had approved it, and who had himself prepared the draft of a tariff plank. But not even yet was Mr. Hanna ready to declare himself. He meant to maneuver in such a way as to make his final move appear to be a concession, in return for which he could ask a substantial equivalent. In other words, he was to receive a reward for doing the very thing that he had all along intended to accomplish. The Committee on Resolutions found it difficult to reach an agreement as to the financial declaration to be made. Senator Teller, who was a member of that committee, held out for a free silver plank, and his colleagues were slow to antagonize him. Mr. Hanna let them discuss the question for nearly two days, during which time the business of the convention was at a standstill, the members listening to speech-making, to the arguments of women suffragists, and to patriotic music. On the first day, the session lasted for little more than an hour. The wildest stories were circulated regarding the coming action of the platform committee. This delay and the resulting rumors seriously alarmed the advocates of gold. They feared lest in the end some sort of compromise might be made. Finally, several of the most influential of their number decided to take the bull by the horns. They went to Mr. Hanna's rooms in the hotel where he was staying and delivered a sort of ultimatum. They demanded that he accept a gold standard plank for the platform, or else they would carry the fight to the floor of the convention, and thus precipitate an open conflict between themselves and the supporters of Mr. McKinley. They gave Mr. Hanna just one hour in which to accede to their demand. Note 13, page 486. That wily leader must have smiled grimly as they left him to reflect upon the threat which they had made. They had quite unconsciously played his game and victory was now assured. Needless to say, in less than the prescribed hour, Mr. Hanna pronounced himself to be a gold man, and the plank which he had brought with him to St. Louis was incorporated in the platform to be reported. Apparently he had yielded under strong compulsion, and the gentlemen who had seemingly forced their will upon him now thought of him with that kindliness which generous victors feel towards a vanquished foe. Note 14, pages 486 and 87. And so it came to pass that on June 18th the platform was read to the convention by Senator Foraker. It described the Cleveland administration as responsible for a record of unparalleled incapacity, dishonor, and disaster. It renewed Republican allegiance to the policy of protection as the bulwark of American industrial independence and the foundation of American development and prosperity. Protection and reciprocity are twin measures of the Republican policy and go hand in hand. Democratic rule has recklessly struck down both and both must be re-established. 
it declared for a firm vigorous and dignified foreign policy for american control of the hawaiian islands for the purchase of the danish west indies and for the construction operation and ownership of the nicaraguan canal by the united states the monroe doctrine was reaffirmed and american intervention in cuba was mentioned with approval we favor the continued enlargement of the navy and a complete system of harbor and seacoast defenses amid breathless silence the part of the platform relating to the money question was read out the republican party is unreservedly for sound money we are unalterably opposed to every measure calculated to debase our currency or impair the credit of our country we are therefore opposed to the free coinage of silver except by international agreement with the leading commercial nations of the world which we pledge ourselves to promote and until such agreement can be obtained the existing gold standard must be preserved all our silver and paper money must be maintained at parity with gold and we favor all measures designed to maintain inviolably the obligations of the United States and all our money, whether coin or paper at the present standard, the standard of the most enlightened nations of the earth. No sooner had the platform been reported to the convention than Senator Teller of Colorado rose and offered a substitute for its gold standard declaration. Mr. Teller's substitute was one which he had tried in vain to induce the committee to adopt. It declared that, the Republican Party favors the use of both gold and silver as equal standard money, and it pledged the party to secure the free, unrestricted, and independent coinage of gold and silver in the mints of the United States at a ratio of 16 parts of silver to one of gold. This embodied the extreme demand of the free silver men, and it was certain to be rejected. Many delegates might have favored the device of a straddle as a measure of expediency, but Senator Teller had forced the monetary issue in a way which admitted of no compromise. In support of his substitute, he spoke with intense feeling, his voice often faltering and tears of unaffected emotion in his eyes. For him, it was a solemn moment. He had been a Republican all his life, and to part with his old associates was unspeakably bitter. When the Republican Party was organized, I was there. It has never had a national candidate since it was organized that my voice has not been raised in his support. It has never had a great principle enunciated in its platform that has not had my approbation until now. With its distinguished leaders I have been in close communion and close friendship. I have shared in its honors and in its few defeats and disasters. Do you think that we can sever our connection with a party like this unless it be a matter of duty? a duty not to our respective states only, but a duty to all the people of this great land. The convention respected Mr. Teller's emotion and listened to his address in sympathetic silence. But when the roll was called, his substitute was rejected by a vote of 818 to 105, and the platform as reported from the committee was adopted by a vote of 812 to 110. Those delegates who were in full accord with Mr. Teller then rose and left the convention hall. They were only thirty-four in number, yet among them were four senators of the United States and two members of the House of Representatives. Note 15, page 489. The convention then proceeded to the nomination of a candidate for the presidency. The nominating speeches were beneath the level even of convention oratory, and neither Senator Foraker's oration in behalf of Mr. McKinley, nor Senator Lodge's in support of Mr. Reed, nor Mr. Depew's for Mr. Morton, showed any great rhetorical ability. 
the result was already known to all, even before the delegates had been polled. Mr. Reed's following melted away, even the delegates from his own state wavering. "'Joe, God Almighty hates a quitter!' roared Mr. Fessenden of Connecticut to Mr. Manley of Maine. But expostulation was useless. A test of Mr. McKinley's strength as against the united opposition had previously been made upon a question of sustaining the committee on credentials, and the vote showed the Ohio candidate to have a large majority, 545 to 359. This was vastly increased when the convention voted directly on the nomination. Mr. McKinley received 661 votes, Mr. Reed, 84, Senator Key, 61, Mr. Morton, 58, and Senator Allison, 35. The choice of Mr. McKinley was then made unanimous amid the first genuine enthusiasm that had been shown. The cheering was vociferous and prolonged, and it reached a climax when a delegate raised upon the point of a flagstaff a cocked hat such as one associates with the portraits of Napoleon. It was a harmless whim on the part of Mr. McKinley to fancy that he bore a certain physical resemblance to the victor of Marengo, and a knowledge of this fact lent vigor to the cheering which greeted the Napoleonic emblem. Unsympathetic Democrats noted that the nomination had been made on June 18th, the date of the Battle of Waterloo, and they professed to see in the coincidence an omen of disaster to the Republican Napoleon. For the vice-presidency, the convention nominated on the first ballot Mr. Garrett A. Hobart, a wealthy lawyer and man of affairs whose home was in New Jersey. Mr. McKinley's nomination was well received by Republicans throughout the country, and the convention's explicit utterance in favor of the gold standard satisfied those capitalists and businessmen who had previously opposed him as a trimmer. But his selection on a gold platform had also the effect of consolidating the advocates of silver and of making the election turn inevitably upon the financial question. Even before this, the Democratic Party in the West and South had become practically a free silver party. The conventions of thirty states had passed resolutions approving the free coinage of silver at a ratio of sixteen to one. Only ten states had declared for the maintenance of the gold standard. The convention of one state alone, Florida, had ignored the money issue altogether. It was so plain that the approaching national convention of the Democratic Party would be controlled by the free silver men that many conservative Democrats, or Cleveland Democrats as they were called, were at first inclined to take no part in the convention's councils, but to break openly with their party in advance of its assemblage. From this course, however, they were dissuaded by President Cleveland himself, who on June 16th caused a letter to be published which may be considered his last official utterance as the head of the Democratic Party. In it, his faith in the ultimate good sense of the people was still apparent. His tone was still both confident and courageous. A national convention, wrote he, is a gathering for conference and reflection. No Democrat should refuse to take part in it from sheer faint-heartedness or with the belief that its conclusions are predetermined. On the contrary, everyone should do all within his power to guide its deliberations to wise and salutary ends. A cause worth fighting for is worth fighting for to the end. This spirited summons rallied the conservative leaders of the party, and when the convention met at Chicago on July 7th, both factions were fully represented there. But as soon as the delegates began to arrive, it was plain that only a miracle of management could stem the tide that had set in for free silver. As Mr. Richard P. Bland expressed it in a published interview, the democracy of the West were convinced that the gold standard meant bankruptcy, and that the convention would declare for the 
free coinage of silver at sixteen to one, and D. Blank, the consequences. Note 16, page 492. A correspondent of the New World, which was the organ of the Cleveland Democrats, described the situation in Chicago very accurately in these words. The Silverites will be invincible if united and harmonious, but they have neither machine nor boss. The opportunity is here. The man is lacking. Such was indeed the case. There were present men who in former years had exercised almost dictatorial power in democratic conventions, but they were now swept aside unheeded or made to feel that they were distrusted and disliked. Senator Hill, Mr. Whitney and ex-Governor Flower of New York were there, and so were ex-Governor W. E. Russell of Massachusetts and General Bragg of Wisconsin. Yet they were lost in the swirling mob that marched and shouted and sang without leadership or any definite purpose, save a desire to smash things and to shake off the domination of the East. Fanatics like Altgeld and Tillman rode the crest of this human deluge, and their wild talk harmonized with the reckless mood of those who listened to them eagerly. One finds it interesting to speculate upon the feelings with which Senator Gorman of Maryland must have watched the strange scenes that were taking place on the eve of this convention of his party. At the convention of 1892, he had been an honored leader. The cause for which he then contended had triumphed at the polls. A Democratic president and a Democratic Congress had sought to keep their pledges to the nation by wise and moderate counsels, by the remission of unjust taxation, and by shaking off the grasp of the money power. But Mr. Gorman and those who acted with him had turned that great victory to naught. They had humiliated their chosen leader and made the professions of their party seem dishonest and ridiculous. Yet in doing this they had sown the wind, and they were now blasted by the whirlwind of political retribution. Who in all this vociferous multitude cared for what Mr. Gorman and his associates wished or thought? The most uncouth delegate from a mining camp was here of more importance than the smooth senator from Maryland, who, by his machinations, sapped the strength of the conservative democracy, had thus unbarred the floodgates of a furious torrent which was already far beyond control. How completely the great majority of the delegates had cast away their old allegiances was made evident when the convention first assembled on July 7th in a vast structure styled the Colosseum, under whose spreading roof of glass and iron 15,000 human beings were crowded together in the heat of a summer sun. The National Committee was still controlled by the conservative element of the party, and this committee now presented to the convention the name of Senator Hill of New York as its selection for the temporary chairmanship. Both usage and etiquette required that their choice should be ratified by the delegates as a matter of ordinary courtesy but not even for a temporary office would the majority accept an eastern man who was also an opponent of free silver. A debate, remarkable for its bitterness, at once began. And, in opposition to Mr. Hill, Senator John W. Daniel of Virginia, an ardent silver advocate, was put in nomination, and was elected to the temporary chairmanship by the decisive vote of 556 to 349. A preliminary test of strength had now been made and from this moment the silvermen were exultantly aware of their supremacy. An eyewitness of the scene thus noted its significance. The scepter of political power has passed from the strong, certain hands of the East to the feverish, headstrong mob of the West and South. Note 17, page 494. During the debate, a delegate had casually spoken the name of President Cleveland. Many of the spectators at once rose to their feet and cheered, 
but it was an ominous circumstance that not a single delegate joined in the cheering, even those from New York remaining silent in their places. Mr. Altgeld, on the other hand, was greeted with yells of unrestrained delight. Having won this victory, and having listened to an address by Senator Daniel, the convention adjourned until the following day. When it reassembled on the morning of July 8th, it was plain that the Silver Faction meant to use its power to the full. By a sweeping majority, the representation of each territory was augmented from two members to six. The delegation from Nebraska which was pledged to support the gold standard was unseated, and a contesting delegation of silver men, with Mr. William J. Bryan at its head, was admitted to the convention. Four gold delegates from Michigan were rejected, and four silver delegates were substituted in their place, thus giving to the silver faction under the unit rule the solid vote of Michigan. Having effected these changes, all of which greatly increased the strength of the majority, Senator S. M. White of California was made permanent president of the convention. On July 9th, the Committee on Resolutions reported a platform devoted almost wholly to the money question, which was declared to be paramount to all others at this time. The platform, after denouncing the demonetization of silver as being the cause of the prevalent financial distress, went on to say, we are unalterably opposed to monometallism, which has locked fast the prosperity of an industrial people in the paralysis of hard times. Gold monometallism is a British policy, and its adoption has brought other nations into financial servitude to London. We demand the free and unlimited coinage of both silver and gold at the present legal ratio of 16 to 1, without waiting for the aid or consent of any other nation. We demand that the standard silver dollar shall be a full legal tender, equally with gold, for all debts, public and private. And we favor such legislation as will prevent for the future the demonetization of any kind of legal tender money by private contract. The resolutions were made to condemn the issuing of interest-bearing bonds of the United States in time of peace and the trafficking with banking syndicates, and to denounce arbitrary interference by federal authorities in local affairs, and especially government by injunction, which was described as a new and highly dangerous form of oppression by which federal judges become at once legislators, judges, and executioners. Life tenure in the public service was also disapproved in favor of appointments for fixed terms of office. The Monroe Doctrine was reaffirmed, sympathy was expressed for the people of Cuba in their struggle for independence, and an enlargement of the powers of the Interstate Commerce Commission was demanded, together with such control of railroads as will protect the people from robbery and oppression. It will be noted that, contrary to all usage, the platform as reported by the majority contained no word of approbation for President Cleveland. More than that, it condemned every important policy with which he had been identified. It was indeed precisely what those who wrote it meant that it should be a repudiation of him and of his administration. A minority of the committee, however, presented a protest to the convention signed by 16 members representing 16 different states. Note 18, page 496. These gentlemen pronounced some of the declarations in the platform as reported by the majority of the committee to be wholly unnecessary. Others were called ill-considered and ambiguously phrased, while still others were extreme and revolutionary. The minority, therefore, offered in place of the Free Silver Declaration a substitute to the effect that any attempt on the part of the United States alone to establish free silver coinage would both imperil the national finances and retard or prevent the success of international bimetallism. 
It would place this country at once upon a silver basis, impair contracts, disturb business, diminish the purchasing power of the wages of labor, and inflict irreparable evil upon our nation's commerce and industry. Finally, the minority offered the following resolution as an amendment to the majority's report. We commend the honesty, economy, courage, and fidelity of the present Democratic National Administration. Both reports were now before the convention, and the climax of the struggle had been reached. At once Senator Tillman leaped upon the platform. To him the minority report with its praise of President Cleveland was like a red rag to a bull. He fronted the multitude, dark and savage-featured, his face flushed, his hair unkempt, the incarnation of the mob vengeful and defiant. There was a strange gleam in his one eye. When he began to speak, his fury rose to a fierce crescendo. He paced the platform like a madman, clenching his fists, hissing out his words, tossing his hands high above his head, and snapping his jaws together. Note 19, page 497. So completely had passion mastered him that much of what he said was unintelligible, but those who heard him gathered that he was denouncing Mr. Cleveland as a tool of Wall Street, a tyrant, and one who richly deserved to be impeached and driven from his high office. Oddly enough, the vehemence of Mr. Tillman defeated its own object. Intense as was the feeling of the multitude to which he spoke, such raving did not touch its sympathies. Though applause was given to him by many, in his violence he had overshot the mark. Senator Hill, who spoke in behalf of the minority report, failed in another way to meet the mood of the vast audience. His face was ashen white and his manner glacial. Mr. Hill entirely lacked the oratorical temperament. Wholly unimpassioned at all times, the emotions of those about him seemed to make him colder and still more unbending. "'I am a Democrat,' he began, "'but I am not a revolutionist.' Then he proceeded with a discourse that was wholly argumentative, an appeal to reason which, if pronounced before a purely deliberative body, might well have carried conviction in its words. It was, however, no deliberative body that he now addressed, but a surging mass of men, frantic with excitement, upon whom mere argument was thrown away. He might as well have spoken to a cyclone, and when he took his seat he knew that he had failed. Mr. Vilas of Wisconsin and Mr. Russell of Massachusetts, who followed and supported Mr. Hill, were no less ineffectual. Weakness of voice, an evident consciousness of coming defeat, and an unpopular cause, all combined to make their efforts unavailing. Until now there had spoken no man to whom that riotous assembly would listen with respect. But at this moment there appeared upon the platform Mr. William Jennings Bryan of Nebraska, who came forward to reply to the three preceding speakers. As he confronted the twenty thousand yelling, cursing, shouting men before him, they felt at once that indescribable magnetic thrill which beasts and men alike experience in the presence of a master. Serene and self-possessed, and with a smile upon his lips, he faced the roaring multitude with a splendid consciousness of power. Before a single word had been uttered by him, the pandemonium sank to an inarticulate murmur, and when he began to speak, even this was hushed to the profoundest silence. A mellow, penetrating voice that reached apparently without the slightest effort to the farthermost recesses of that enormous hall gave utterance to a brief exordium. Mr. Chairman and Gentlemen of the Convention, I should be presumptuous indeed to present myself against the distinguished gentleman to whom you have listened, if this were a mere measuring of abilities. But this is not a contest between persons. 
the humblest citizen in the land when clad in the armor of a righteous cause is stronger than all the hosts of error i come to speak to you in defense of a cause as holy as the cause of liberty the cause of humanity mr bryan had in these three sentences already won his auditors the repose and graceful dignity of his manner the courteous reference to his opponents and the perfect clearness and simplicity of his language riveted the attention of every man and woman in the convention hall as he continued it was with increasing earnestness and power he spoke briefly of the issue which was there to be determined he held it to be an issue based upon a vital principle the right of the majority to rule and to have its firm convictions embodied in the declaration of the party it is not a question of persons it is a question of principle and it is not with gladness that we find ourselves brought into conflict with those who are now arrayed upon the other side when you turning to the gold delegates come before us and tell us that we are about to disturb your business interests we reply that you have disturbed our business interests by your course we say to you that you have made the definition of a business man too limited in its application the man who is employed for wages is as much a business man as his employer the attorney in a country town is as much a business man as the corporation council in a great metropolis the merchant at the crossroads store is as much a business man as the merchant of new york the farmer who goes forth in the morning and toils all day who begins in the spring and toils all summer and who by the application of brain and muscle to the natural resources of the country creates wealth is as much a business man as the man who goes upon the board of trade and bets upon the price of grain the miners who go down a thousand feet into the earth or climb two thousand feet upon the cliffs and bring forth from their hiding-places the precious metals to be poured into the channels of trade are as much business men as the few financial magnates who in a back room corner the money of the world we come to speak for this broader class of business men mr bryan's delivery of this passage was remarkable for its effectiveness he spoke with the utmost deliberation so that every word was driven home to each hearer's consciousness and yet with an ever-increasing force which found fit expression in the wonderful harmony and power of his voice his sentences rang out now with an accent of superb disdain and now with the stirring challenge of a bugle call we do not come as aggressors our war is not a war of conquest we are fighting in the defence of our homes our families and posterity we have petitioned and our petitions have been scorned we have entreated and our entreaties have been disregarded we have begged and they have mocked when our calamity came we beg no longer we entreat no more we petition no more we defy them as mr bryan pronounced these spirited words the great hall seemed to rock and sway with the fierce energy of the shout that ascended from twenty thousand throats when he flung out the sentence we defy them the leaderless democracy of the west was leaderless no more in that very moment and in that burst of wild applause it was acclaiming its new chief you come and tell us that the great cities are in favor of the gold standard we reply that the great cities rest upon our broad and fertile prairies burn down your cities and leave our farms and your cities will spring up again as if by magic but destroy our farms and the grass will grow in the streets of every city in the country we go forth confident that we shall win why because upon the paramount issue of this campaign there is not a spot of ground upon which the enemy will dare to challenge battle
If they tell us that the gold standard is a good thing, we shall point to their platform and tell them that their platform pledges the party to get rid of the gold standard and to substitute by metallism. If the gold standard is a good thing, why try to get rid of it? I call your attention to the fact that some of the very people who are in this convention today and who tell us that we ought to declare in favor of international bimetallism, thereby declaring that the gold standard is wrong and that the principle of bimetallism is better, these very people four months ago were open and avowed advocates of the gold standard and were then telling us that we could not legislate two metals together even with the aid of all the world. If the gold standard is a good thing, we ought to declare in favor of its retention and not in favor of abandoning it. And if the gold standard is a bad thing, why should we wait until other nations are willing to help us let go? Here is the line of battle, and we care not upon which issue they force the fight. We are prepared to meet them on either issue or on both. It is the issue of 1776 over again. Our ancestors, when but three millions in number, had the courage to declare their political independence of every other nation. Shall we, their descendants, when we have grown to seventy millions, declare that we are less independent than our forefathers? No, my friends, that will never be the verdict of our people. Therefore, we care not upon what lines the battle is fought. If they say bimetallism is good, but that we cannot have it until other nations help us, we reply, instead of having a gold standard because England has, we will restore bimetallism, and then let England have bimetallism because the United States has it. If they dare to come out into the open field and defend the gold standard as a good thing, we will fight them to the uttermost. Having behind us the producing masses of this nation and the world, the laboring interests and the toilers everywhere, we will answer their demand for a gold standard by saying to them, You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. End of chapter 11, part 2